Welcome back to Coriam, the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. I'm Brian Goberti. And I'm Breed C. All right, Bree, this week, let's talk about hemoptysis. You want to start us off with a case? Yeah, sure. So the other day, I saw a 70-year-old guy who popped up on my board with a chief complaint of just blood-tinged sputum. His vitals looked great, and that was pretty much his only complaint, so triage put him in the hallway. When I went over to see him, he quietly described just two days of mild coughing with some streaks of blood in his sputum. Eventually, though, after a lot of questioning, I learned that he had a history of an oropharyngeal tumor, status post radiation, that had eroded into his internal carotid artery, and he'd undergone coiling twice. I moved him immediately into a recess room, and pretty soon afterwards, he opened up. While this patient didn't have true and true hemoptysis, as his bleeding was not technically from the tracheobronchial tree, it made me pause and think hard about hemoptysis. Yeah, especially now that we're in the thick of pneumonia, bronchitis, and flu season, it's not uncommon to have a patient come in saying that blood comes up when they cough. And it's hard to assess how to think about the symptom on a spectrum of severity. For example, a patient who is well-appearing, who denies medical problems, like your patient at first, has great vitals and says that they've had a cough with a bit of blood can seem like just a simple bronchitis until they're not. Exactly. So let's just back it up a step and talk about pathophysiology for a second. True hemoptysis really originates from just three different sources, the bronchial arteries, the pulmonary arteries, and the non-bronchial arteries, which are the intercostals, the coronaries, and the inferior phrenic arteries. And I know that 90% of hemoptysis originates from the bronchial arteries, whereas only 5% comes from each of the pulmonary arteries and the non-bronchial arteries. Why do we always think of bronchial bleeding causing the heaviest hemoptysis, Brie? Well, you have to remember that the bronchial arteries are under systemic circulatory pressure, given that they have to supply the supporting structures of the lung. Whereas the pulmonary arteries are under low pressure because they just have to supply the alveoli. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I want to make sure we cover categorization of hemoptysis because we've all heard of various cutoffs. Now, mild is defined as less than 20 cc's over 24 hours, but I've heard massive being defined as anywhere from 300 cc's to one liter in 24 hours. What do you go by? Well, In the ED, we usually don't have patients sitting around for 24 hours, hopefully, so I think it'd be really hard to gauge based on the amount of bleeding over a whole day. So this might seem obvious, but some sources state that greater than 600 cc's of blood in less than four hours is associated with a much higher mortality. Right, and that's basically why we care about massive versus non-massive. Mortality for massive hemoptysis, in this case defined as over 500 cc's in 24 hours, has been estimated to be as high as 38%. So that's pretty scary stuff, especially when most patients have a lot of trouble describing how much bleeding they've had at home at all. Totally. I mean, I sometimes bring out a test tube, a urine sample cup, and then my Nalgene, and ask patients which one is closest to the amount of blood they've copped up in the past 24 hours. But they usually just end up looking pretty confused. Nice, Brie. Uh, Props for using props (laughs) on shift. I try. So, moving on to causes of hemoptysis, I tend to think of just a few etiologies, basically pneumonia, cancer, bronchiectasis, PE, and coagulopathies, but I think it'd be worth it to flesh out our differential today, Brian. Absolutely. Let's dive a bit deeper into the adult causes of hemoptysis. And please look at our show notes for a more comprehensive list. You mentioned pneumonia. As it turns out, infectious reasons are the most common cause of hemoptysis. This can include bronchitis, lung abscesses, pneumonia, and TB, to name a few. Malignancy is definitely one to keep in mind, and hemoptysis can actually be the sole presenting symptom sometimes. We think less about cardiac etiologies such as mitral stenosis, endocarditis, or CHF, but these can definitely be culprits as well. 
Yeah, those all make sense, um, especially the last ones. All that increased right-sided systemic pressure can really back up on those bronchial arteries, eh? So, speaking of weird, there are the rheumatological ones that usually don't top our lists but are important to consider. So, sarcoidosis, good pastures, lupus, amyloidosis, and the various vasculitis diseases. Yeah, and vascular causes include pulmonary hypertension and aortic or pulmonary artery aneurysms. Anything else, Brie? Yeah, just a few more. So our patients don't always present as open books in terms of relevant histories and exposures, but hopefully drug and toxin exposures such as anticoagulation, antiplatelets, cocaine, which can cause cracked lung, or organic solvents comes up with a good history. Right, and hopefully if they've suffered any trauma, which can cause tracheobronchial rupture or pulmonary contusion, that will be revealed as well. Same goes for recent procedures such as bronch or lung biopsies, but hopefully they mention that too. So my all-time favorite random cause of hemoptysis is catamenial hemoptysis. All right, you got to tell me more. So it's basically pulmonary endometriosis. Patients have hemoptysis when they menstruate due to fibroids in their lungs. What a crazy diagnosis. Yeah, that's Dr. Houseworthy. And unfortunately, that's part of the reason why up to 25% of hemoptysis cases are actually considered idiopathic, despite this exhaustive list. And some people throw the causes that aren't actually true hemoptysis into a bucket just called pseudohemoptysis. Things like sinusitis, epistasis, URI, rhinorrhea, pharyngitis, or GI bleeding. Right, but given our high mortality for hemoptysis, we want to do a very careful history, physical, and assessment of these patients and not just write off their complaints as just a post-nasal drip until we're sure. Oh yeah, absolutely, Brian. So let's say you have a stable patient and have a bit of time to talk to them before resuscitating them. Any pro tips in terms of what to ask for in a history? Well, besides our usual symptoms such as chest pain, dyspnea, GI symptoms, etc., make sure you ask about B symptoms such as fever, weight loss, night sweats, and lymphadenopathy. Ask about prior lung, renal, cardiac disease, drug, smoking, chemical exposures, travel and infectious exposures, and any medications. And definitely check if there's any other bleeding such as hematuria. When asking about hemoptysis itself, we mentioned the challenge of sussing out quantity, but try to nail down the time frame, whether it's acute or chronic if they've had clots, or if there are any precipitating factors. Great. So with the physical exam, besides the usual cardiopulmonary stuff, make sure to look for petechiae or ecchymosis, edema, aptus ulcers, and clubbing, which can actually indicate chronic lung disease. Sometimes patients will have photos on their phones or even samples of their blood-tinged sputum. It's it's definitely worth taking a look. All right. So moving on to workup, what labs do you get, Brie? Well, basically the important stuff that makes sense. So a CBC with diff, a BMP, LFTs, coags, a type and screen, UA, and any infectious workup if suspected. A blood gas could be helpful too. Okay. And now our patient is stable. Vitals look fantastic. They're giving a pretty non-concerning history. So we have time for imaging. I think we'd all pretty much start with a chest x-ray, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're lucky, the answer will be right there, such as a tumor, a cavity, or pneumonia. But be careful, because early pulmonary hemorrhage can actually look like an infiltrate. Since 20% of patients will have a normal chest x-ray, consider moving on to CT. And this can't be stressed enough, but CT should only be considered for super stable patients. We would never want to send a patient with hemoptysis to the scanner if their airway is at all threatened. When I think about CT versus CTA, I'm thinking, is this more likely to be vascular or non-vascular? meaning a CTA would show the bronchial arteries, aneurysms, and PE, whereas the non-con CT would show bronchiectasis and tumors that perhaps wouldn't be picked up on the x-ray. 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. And you could always chat with your radiologist to protocol the CT. And don't forget your trusty bedside echo as well. This can identify valve issues, signs of PE, and other cardiac abnormalities. Nice. So let's move on finally to managing the hemoptysis. Super scary, but super important. Yeah, and besides jumping into the ABCs with close monitoring, how do you like to think about these patients, Brie? Well, I mean, I think we all appropriately focus on controlling the airway, which is imperative, obviously. I mean, the life threat isn't exsanguination, but rather asphyxiation. There's only about 150 cc's of anatomic dead space in the major airways. But the other two big goals I keep in mind are identifying and treating the underlying cause, as well as stabilizing hemodynamics with volume resuscitation. Great. Airway control, treat the cause, and give volume PRN. One other important thing, don't forget to gown up and mask up. Those five seconds could help reduce potentially dangerous respiratory and contact risks with an undifferentiated hemoptysis patient. For sure. Protect yourself. So back to the airway. Who are you intubating, Brian? Now, this is a difficult spot to be in, and the risks and benefits for intubation really depend on the quantity and etiology of hemoptysis. For example, a patient with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage from severe pulmonary hypertension may deteriorate with traditional RSI meds. So this one's really going to come down to the patient, the setting, and the provider. Yeah, and even for patients who look okay in the ED, think hard, especially if they're elderly, coagulopathic, or have altered mental status. Even if you don't intubate them right away, rehearse your plan, verbalize it, and maybe even set up your equipment in the room. That's actually what saved me with that patient I first talked about. Okay, let's say we've decided to intubate. This is such a complex topic that it could be its own podcast series on its own. But let's just talk about some major tips. Okay, so we definitely want to pre-oxygenate and sit the patient upright. Set up two suctions and, if possible, intubate with an ET tube that's greater than 8.5 millimeters in the inner diameter to help with suctioning and the future bronch. I think it's rare to identify which side is bleeding. But if you can, consider quote-unquote selective intubation into the non-bleeding lung so you're actually ventilating the good side and avoiding blood reflux from the bad lung. What is this bad lung down thing we always hear about? I think it's actually more theoretical than proven. The thought is less blood will reflux into the good lung if the patient is in the lateral position with the bad lung down. Oh, okay. So those are some pretty decent airway tips. In terms of our other goals, don't forget two large bore IVs and massive transfusion protocol if needed versus just blood versus just fluids for volume resuscitation. And definitely correct the coagulopathy if that is the underlying cause. If infection is the underlying cause, treat that appropriately with antibiotics and so on. Is there anything in particular we can do for non-massive hemoptysis, Brian? Yeah, so nebulized TXA may have a role in these cases. Ooh, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. Yeah, so let's, let's nerd out. I love nerding out about this paper. Uh, there was a small double-blinded RCT published in CHEST in 2018. They randomized 25 patients to get 500 milligrams nebulized TXA TID and 22 patients to get normal saline NEBS, which was the placebo. Now, these were hemodynamically stable adult patients admitted with mild hemoptysis, so less than 200 cc's per 24 hours, and no respiratory instability. Resolution of hemoptysis within five days of admission was significantly higher in the TXA-treated patients than the placebo patients at 96% versus 50% respectively. Mean hospital length of stay and need for invasive procedures were also much lower in the TXA group. Wow, that sounds really promising, but I really hope that I don't have to watch my patients in the ED with hemoptysis bleed for five days straight. Yeah, this is focused on admitted patients who could get TID dosing with unclear implications on immediate effect but there were no side effects noted in either group, so why not? 
Well, that's a fair point. I'm going to try that next time for my mild hemoptysis patients, I think. So back to reversing treatable causes. Ultimately, patients may need a bronch both for diagnosis as well as localized therapy. Generally, this isn't happening in the ED, but bronch can be useful for electrocautery, tamponade, and vasoconstrictive or procoagulant agents at the source. So definitely talk to your pulmonologist and crit care colleagues early. And some patients may require bronchial arterial embolization, so be sure to call IR and your pulmonology team. Definitely. Okay, in terms of dispo, I tend to have a low threshold for a higher level of care for these patients. Basically, only hemodynamically stable patients with mild hemoptysis can be considered for the floor. Oh, for sure. I'm really only discharging patients if they have a clear etiology of their bleeding, they're healthy, hemodynamically stable, with scant, resolved hemoptysis, no coagulopathy, and a reassuring workup. Yeah, and for those you're discharging, it's so important to ensure that they have reliable follow-up. And remember to tell them to quit smoking if they do that, and give them very strict return precautions. Right. Should we do some take-home points, Bree? Yeah, sure. So, one, massive hemoptysis is traditionally defined as greater than 300 milliliters of blood over 24 hours. But for those of us in the ED, remember that massive hemoptysis has a very high mortality, so it's more important to look at hemodynamics, risk factors, and history. They need very close monitoring. Two, there is a huge differential for hemoptysis, so think about the various etiologies in terms of treating underlying causes and directing your workup. Three, asphyxiation can be caused by as little as 150 milliliters of blood, so early airway control is paramount. Four, don't forget about nebulized TXA for the mild hemoptysis cases, treating underlying causes, and giving blood if necessary. And finally, number five, be very careful when deciding how to dispo these patients. Those with moderate to serious hemoptysis will often require admission for bronchoscopy. Have a low threshold for a higher level of care. Awesome, Bree. That's all for this episode. Continue to follow us on Twitter at core underscore EM and visit us on our website, coreem.net. Until the next one, this is Brian and Bree signing off. <laughs>